Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. Just because there's deals around and empty buildings doesn't mean you should take them. I think that if you are successful and every broker's calling you like, I got the best space, I got the best space, and you feel excited because you have all this opportunity, that could be the demise of you, ultimately. I think right now, less is more. Get your core business as good as humanly possible and walk before you run. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Hey, it's Josh. I'm starting a new case study group this month, and I'm looking for a few specific people. So, if you're a restaurant owner or operator that's currently doing $50,000 per month in sales, have the desire and the bandwidth to increase your sales by 10 to 20% and have two to three hours per week to work on these strategies, I would love to help you scale up by Christmas. Go to restaurantcasestudy.com and sign up to learn more. Again, that's restaurantcasestudy.com. When I think about Mark Birnbaum, I think about the word cool. This dude has over 50,000 followers on Instagram. His trendy restaurants have lines out the door nightly, and celebrity investors dump boatloads of cash into everything he creates. But at his core, he's a restaurateur, just like you and me. And his path to success was formulaic and well thought out. In today's episode, Mark shares the formula he used to build a restaurant that doesn't follow trends, it creates them. In high school, it was my first taste of nightlife for selling tickets for after prom parties in New York City. After the prom, every high school kind of went out to like a teen club. It was a real club, but they just did like, you know, a non-alcohol kind of thing. And a friend of mine, Craig Koenig, was in the nightclub business. He was a few years older than me, and he had been doing this in his high school. So he recruited me as someone who was social and had no problem like selling. And I thought it was amazing. I sold to my high school. I sold to a couple competing high schools, you know, and I just sort of like either did it myself or found the guy who knew everybody and, and they did it. And I made these big rips commission. And I was like, wow, I'm selling it. Whatever it was like $20 a ticket. I got 10. He got 10. I was like, that's like literally $10 per person or maybe it was 15. I don't remember, but it was amazing. And the fact that everybody came to me and needed me to get access to something that they wanted to do, and I was getting paid for it, and I got like free drink tickets, and I was kind of like a center of attention. And I really liked that. That was the beginning. Now, skip to like, you know, through college, I worked in a nightclub and I was kind of jack of all trades. I had my own night. And I went to Ithaca, where Cornell is, and Syracuse, not too far, and a bunch of other college in that college area of upstate New York. And took over this nightclub, kind of a mobster really took over this giant space, this 22,000 square foot Masonic temple in the middle of the commons of Ithaca. And I overheard him in a pizza place talking about, I'm opening a nightclub over here. I'm from Yonkers, blah, blah, blah. 
And I'm like, oh, nice to meet you. I throw parties in New York City. I've been working in nightclubs for years. You know, I bullshit in my life. <laughs> so I'd always done stuff in nightlife. The fact that I was doing it and having fun was amazing. So that was my entree into this business. After college, I did not go into nightclubs as a career because I thought it's not really a career. So I sold life insurance and health insurance and mutual funds and did estate planning and learned kind of like that trade of the business because I was good at selling. So that was selling. I've always been able to sell things. What drug you back in? I wanted to learn what was going on. I wanted to see where the action was in Manhattan. I stood in the side of a bar. I couldn't afford a table. I couldn't afford really the drinks there. It didn't matter. I wanted to know who the players were. I became friends with managers, doormen, security guards, servers, bartenders, whoever was in that business. I was obsessed with seeing and understanding what they were doing, still not understanding that I was going to make a career out of it. But I certainly knew that was the only thing I really loved. I would go out every night because it was fun. But I didn't do it the same way everyone else did. They looked at it as a place to go as a customer. I looked at it as an opportunity to learn. And I saw who the players were, and I kind of tried my best to make friends with the big boys of that time who were a decade older than me and very cool and like hang out with celebrities or models or rappers or whatever. And I would fantasize in bed being them. It's like amazing. Wow. I want to be like that, you know? So when September 11th hit, I'm in 2001, I was just about the time of running out of money and going out every night and not really doing anything except that. And the World Trade Center got hit and I was living right across the street. Long story short, I ran away from that whole scenario, literally. And it was very traumatizing and very disturbing. And then I lost a friend at a young age to cancer the same month. And it was just a lot for a 23-year-old. And I decided then and there to pursue only what I enjoyed every single day. And that's sort of the long story short of it, which was from these tragedies came the I don't give a shit sort of point of view about I want to do something every day where I go to sleep at night, looking forward to tomorrow, and I get up with a hop in my step because I'm excited about the day. And so it gave me that sort of gusto to be like, all right, I'm going to open a nightclub. And I, my friend wanted to open a nightclub. I had met him throughout this whole wild experience of going out and he wanted to open a club. I said, I'll do it with you. Whatever you want to do. We raise money, blah, blah, blah. We open a club. Got Puff Daddy to do the first one. The story continues. But that's really where it gets interesting for me. So I ran nightclubs in Hollywood in the early 2000s, opened my own bar in Hollywood 2010. And then I made the transition into fine dining. Generally, because the money I was making was a little too easy and I felt like I needed to disappoint people and set expectations exceptionally high for myself in a field that I had no experience in whatsoever. What was your inspiration for transitioning from nightlife to fine dining? Well, that came years later, frankly. Nightlife was everything because, first of all, I was young. Second of all, I wasn't interested in food. I never really ate out very often. I never really experienced good food as a young person. It wasn't on my radar at all. And for 10 straight years, I say we, like wherever I was, me and the people that I was working with, then eventually Eugene, my partner, we embraced whoever we could in nightlife to be our customers or friends. Anybody that was like a little bit better than just the regular old friends from high school that we grew up with, we were psyched to take care of, make them our customers into the, our fold. We are our demographic. That's what we always live by. 
We never faked it. We like this certain type of music. We like the certain type of atmosphere. We like the certain type of energy. And we believed it. And we believe that our customer base, our demographic also, we had the finger on that pulse, we thought, which we did because ultimately it succeeded. So sure. The transition that you're talking about came when we opened 10 June with STK. And we had our first experience of really sitting in the room when a restaurant got created from inception, figuring out who the chef was, firing a chef because he wasn't very good, getting a new chef late in the game, dealing with all that stuff, changing the menu, understanding what our demographic and then a demographic we don't have yet would like. Both marry the two, come up with the understanding of a one-stop shop for nightlife and entertainment. What did that mean in the meatpacking district when it began in New York City? To get people to sit in a restaurant that you've created, not to mention 400 or 500 people a night or more, is next to impossible. So understanding what it took to get people into the restaurant, and then you pause and say, well, we've done the hardest work. We've gotten this captive audience to come to where we are, and God forbid they enjoy it. So if they do, great. But what do they do when they're done with dinner in a New York City restaurant with the demographic we're dealing with? Every one of them for the most part, during the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, for sure, we're getting up and going out. Well, as you know, restaurants have a check average, and that check average can range. Sure, there's those extreme big spenders, but on average, you're really only getting $100, $120, $150 in the steakhouse. You're only like a group of 10 people. If you take that group of 10 and they sit down and they spend $1,500 on dinner, you're psyched, right? But that same group will get up and go to a nightclub with that same crew and spend five grand in two hours on alcohol. They might even spend 10. I got news in New York City in those days, they might have spent 100. Well, they were already in my restaurant, I'm thinking. Why would I ever want them to leave? No different than a casino spends all this money on comps and free hotels and airplanes or whatever just to get them to gamble. You get a guy who could spend it and gamble it, give them the fucking few hundred dollars of free shit that seems like a lot so that he goes and gambles a million dollars downstairs so that one-stop shop concept which seems fairly obvious to everyone now but restaurant with a club in the basement what is a basement of a restaurant generally storage kitchen bathrooms you know whatever but offices it's not usable space generally we have a space where it's like a five thousand square foot 10 foot 12 foot ceiling space it's usable so get the shit upstairs and don't put it downstairs and let's make money after midnight in a usable space that is generally unused. Your rent is paid already, right? So we were cranking out millions of dollars in liquor sales from midnight to four o'clock in the morning, four nights a week, you know, a business that could do the same as the restaurant, but with higher margins, less contribution for rents in the basement. And wow, what a thing. Oh, and by the way, what an experience we're giving to these people. They're sitting in our restaurant, having a nice time, and seamlessly, they go downstairs, Goodfellas style, seamlessly set up all the things that made me nervous. Will I get in? Will I not get in? What happens if I've got a big group? I don't know. We kind of took that away from the big groups. We took that nervousness. We got you. You're sorted. Your dinner's set and right downstairs to your table waiting for you. Isn't that nice? It's a lot better than catching a cab, figuring it out, going to some place. It sucks or you didn't get in or somebody didn't have idea. I don't know. There's a million things, but we got the relationship of why we want to take care of. Then you get into the comping and the extras and the hookups and the, it's a Saturday night at 10 o'clock. I can't get a reservation. We got you. Why do we got you as far as that guy? Because you're going to spend five grand downstairs. It became a very normal 
why call us situation. And frankly, it worked very well. And we continued with that for years. Abe and Arthur is an SL. There was SCK in Tanjun, two blocks away. Then we've got on and on with Catch and Catch Roof and Finale in the General, which whatever. It was just like always that sort of one-stop shop experience. And then we incorporated entertainment and DJs and live music with people that you know everyone loved to hear, whether it was a one-off song or a popular artist back in the day. That was the surprise performance thing that we included. Again, it was because that's what we wanted to see. If I can get LL Cool J to grab a microphone and perform or early day Drake or early day Gaga or early day whatever, or the old schools who I love, whether it was Nas or Redman and Method Man or Kanye, they were all doing shows for us for a free dinner and hanging out and, you know, take a mic, no big deal. It's no big deal. And everyone loved it. And that was their fans. Pre-social media, you needed to do it. Are you able to look back on those days and clearly define the essential elements of what cool are? Because it's cool and catch is cool and it's lines out the doors and really prominent people. But it started with an idea. And I'm wondering, now that you're a bit older, after decades of experience, are you able to sit back and say, these were the levers we pulled that really made an impact? This is how we got those people in. This is how we developed this particular reputation. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, you have to, like, you know, the whole we are a demographic statement continues to morph. The idea of us, which is why we're sort of out of nightlife in general, that doesn't mean nightlife doesn't exist in the world anymore. Not at all. But our demo, the ones that we grew up with, if I was calling the same people, which is my demo, and saying, let's go out on a Tuesday, meet me at dinner at 10, and we go downstairs at 1230, I don't know a lot of people that want to do that anymore. So what was cool then isn't cool anymore for our crowd. However, our crowd has morphed, just like I did, to say, I kind of want to just go to the restaurant, take my wife and other couples to a little bit more of a lively restaurant with great food, great service, great vibe. That is our mantra and it has been throughout for many years. That is what's cool is that you're providing great food, great service, great vibe. And what we always found was great vibe restaurants very rarely did great food or service well. Great food and service generally did not translate to great vibe in terms of what we're talking about, fun, a little bit, action, whatever. The fact that we were able to marry those three things together well and consistently and continue to do that and get better at it, whether it's at better food, better service, better vibe, that's the goal. We call it always elevating, right? So we're always trying to innovate and elevate. That's what works today for us. Are we able to unpack vibe, though? The reason I ask is 10,000 square feet is just that's a lot of feet. That's a lot of room to fill. And so it's kind of like a two-part question. Number one, especially when you open a new location or after a location's been around for a few years, do you worry about your ability to fill it? And what systems do you have in place to make sure that it stays busy? Because if you've only filled out 5,000 of 10,000 square feet, I don't care how good the vibe is in the side that has people in it. It's vacuous, you know? So we've always said, You've never in your life walked into a half full restaurant. It's half empty and it sucks, right? 50% is not a vibe. So filling restaurants has always kept us up at night. But what's made it easier, especially when you're launching a new restaurant, is our design of a 10,000 square foot or sometimes 20,000 square foot or 15,000 square foot space. And in order to do that, it has everything to do with 
sectionable areas where if one is closed off, you don't notice it, right? So we could be half full on a Sunday or Monday. It's possible. But the customer that walks in is walking into a wait, a busy bar, and a crowded main dining room. As long as you have that nucleus full without an empty cafeteria that you're looking at, uh, half empty, you're fine. So the answer to that is really design and layout. And that has been extremely important to us since, say, the beginning. But let's take Catch Original, for example, which is now in its 10th year in New York City. That's over three floors. It's 15,000 feet. It's probably 450 seats. You come into the second floor, it's always 100% full. You may go to the third floor and it's empty or closed. But you wouldn't go up to the third floor because it's closed. You don't see it. No one cares. <laughs> you're happy with what we've given you in the scenario that you're in. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, everyone's going to be busy in New York City and LA generally or Vegas. So the success of restaurants has everything to do with Sunday, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. If you can be busy on those nights, it doesn't have to be 100% of 100%, but 100% for sure of your 50% on the slower nights. I and mean, you're never going to get the swell of New York of tourism on the weekends and out-of-towners and all that stuff that happens. And also everyone's off from work, so you're generally going to be busy as hell. If you have a decent reputation, even if you don't, you survive. So design and layout is the answer to that question. And it has to be great. And the crowd has to be great. And then you have to curate who's sitting where. Just, you know, it doesn't mean like all the girls in the front and all the pretty people in the front. Or that. No, it has to do with like no extremes and any. You have to have thought. And that came from our nightclub side about why we sit a room where we do. If it's 10 guys having a business dinner. And you put another 10 and another 10 and another 10. I'll see next to each other. You look around. It's like, my God, uh, if I wanted to go to a steakhouse where it's all businessmen in suits, I'd go there. But that's not what people are there. It's diversity. So we're always looking at that salad mix that we call the perfect salad of placement so that it's fun to see who's next to you and across from you and take a look. I put myself in the place of the independent restaurateurs that are listening and they would say the band sound great. The DJs sound great, like the one off performances and all of this. And I think that that translates to some degree to every market. But I think there are probably a lot of people out there listening, saying, well, once I hit a certain revenue marker, once I'm making this much money, that's when I'll begin to do that stuff. And my question to you would be, one, when do you start? Do you start from the beginning? And number two, how long do you keep it going? If you decide to do live music on a Thursday night, and after a month, it doesn't feel like it's gaining any traction. What do you do? Is everything a hit out the gate? How do you determine what to move forward with and when to launch? The scariest thing about the restaurant business is that unless you're like on your business plan, a nine out of 10, you're failing, right? Like if it's essentially perfect, you make money. If you're slightly off that, you might break even and figure it out over time. And if you're anything below an eight, you're out of business. It's, you're losing money because the expenses are so high with your kitchen, specifically restaurants, your labor costs, whether you have 400 covers or 50 covers, you kind of have to have the same amount of staff. You kind of have to be prepared. Anyway, no, it's not a success out the gate. You're always looking for things to add, subtract. Your original menu generally is never your menu two years from now. When we look back on any menus, they're all different. There's some staples that might have survived, but generally, and that's with the food. And then, of course, when you're in an entertainment side of business where it's restaurant with entertainment, that either works or doesn't work. And it could be talent related. It could be 
it's just too loud related. It could be your food is bad, but your entertainment is good. And why are you bothering with the food? There's so many different factors for so many different reasons. But the worst thing you can do is dig in and double down or triple down on a bad idea. You have to be able to look yourself in the mirror immediately and say, that did not work. That is not working. And the reason I know that is because my customers are telling me so by sending food back, not fully eaten, complaining, writing bad reviews, maybe not repeating. There's a lot of indicators where you're like, something is off here. That might be a immediate change of a chef. That might be an immediate change of your menu style. It might be tweaking things just enough. Again, it's hard to, if one person said, I have one, this particular problem, we could review it and unpack it and analyze it and say, well, let's look at that. But as a general thought, I think the biggest mistake that we've ever made is maybe trying to force a square into a round peg or whatever that, if it's not, you got to figure out immediately what to do differently and try to listen to feedback from your staff, from your customers. They generally have it right. And when the majority tells you a very similar answer, it's too cold in here. It's too bright in here. Those are big deal things. It's too loud, that music. I can't hear myself here. Your echoing is terrible. We've had these problems many times. And we've had to immediately figure out how to soundproof. We've had to immediately get gels on things. We had to immediately, because you don't realize you're sitting in a seat and there's a blinding light coming in because your designer came up, but they didn't get the fact that this is going to literally blind everybody. And they get annoyed. Personalities of your team are very important. If you had a bad day and you broke up with your girlfriend or you got dumped or whatever, you can't bring that to work because a customer doesn't care. If you're on theater, if you're in the Broadway show and you're acting out the one time someone flew in from God knows where to watch the show that they've been reading about, they want the best performance you can give that night, that time. That's their time. You know, same thing. You're about to open an Aspen soon. Coming out of the pandemic. I think going into the pandemic, we all felt really confident about where we were as restaurateurs. Coming out of the pandemic and coming into this new world with a new location opening, how has your worldview changed? How has your view on the opening of this restaurant changed? What has the pandemic adjusted in terms of what a restaurant launch looks like, what you guys offer, how you're choosing to operate the location? So the pandemic was crazy. We made certain decisions to invest in our team early, which meant not furloughing everybody, keeping our management, keeping our heads, keeping our chefs, everybody employed for as long as we could afford to, even coming out of our own pocket for a long period of time, getting them through the holidays, getting them through New Year, you know, and then saying, look, we're going to revisit this next month. You know, we're not a bank, we're not the government, but like, we're going to do every single thing we can to kick this can so that everyone feels happy, comfortable, and remembers to a degree that we invested when we didn't have to, right? You could have said, hey, we're closed, what do you expect? And people would understand, but we did the best we could. Perfect, no, but certainly we did, I think, a lot. And it worked in that, I think, that the team that is still with us today appreciates it and was excited to now get to another chapter, which is let's now double down on our quality brand catch because we have a steakhouse in New York that was doing great until the pandemic. And then that was only nine months open, but it was terrific and it's still doing great. And catch in Las Vegas had no tourism. There was no like huge conventions and hotels were at like 1% capacity. Yet we 
We're open seven days a week. One of the only restaurants open seven days a week at Aria and all of the MGM portfolio as well. And we wound up taking over the restaurant next door that was out of business and filling that one too on Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. So we were like, well, that's local based. That's like people that want to come to our restaurant. Granted, there were less places open, but there's plenty still to do. But so it gave us some confidence that we were still open and successful. People seem to love us still. And we had the team in place still. And of course, Tillman, our partner, owning half of our business, you know, is a huge security blanket. But also, he's got 600 restaurants closed. The Rocky, he's wrong. I mean, talk about, you can't model this shit out where everything is closed, casinos in it. So it was a crazy time. But we all said, you know what? Let's believe in ourselves. Let's believe in our team. Let's believe in our brand. And let's do what we didn't do, say, in 08. That's what gave us our sort of confidence to do it. And yeah, Aspen is a great place. It's our demographic, whatever. I love it there. And, and it's a beautiful venue. And it's the one venue. And during the middle of the pandemic, I went there and made a deal, a deal we probably would not have gotten had there not been a pandemic. Catch Steak Melrose Place that's about to open for Super Bowl in February here in LA. We wanted that space a year before the pandemic, couldn't get it. The restaurant that was there left. I was there the very next day. The best venues are very sought after, right? Everything, bad real estate, good real estate, good real estate we're in. Main on main stuff, you have to be super aggressive. So we were, and deals were made. We're about to open two restaurants hire another 400, 500 people during what was a pandemic. We're psyched about that. We feel good about that. There's a popular misconception out there that it's impossible to make money in the restaurant industry. And there are countless restaurant concepts out there that are busy, but not profitable. And I'm curious to know, how did you manage to get the best of both worlds? What are you tracking? It is very difficult. And for a very long time, you know, people are always like, well, now you're doing well. Thanks. It's only taken me 20 years to do okay. Even if we were the best at what we did in our industry, we're not tech billionaires. You know, it's like, look at how much money is out there from people doing one real estate deal in one month. They make more money than we've made in our lifetime. So yeah, we do make money and we are profitable in the restaurant business. Yes, we figured out a way finally after chasing our tail and reinvesting every dollar we ever made or lost into ourselves and praying to God and acting like we are successful, but that's only a persona. I still lived in my same studio-ish apartment for 10 years and moved out four years ago. So it's an investment. First of all, when you love it, the financial part isn't really the driver. I don't think anyone's going to the restaurant business to become rich. I just don't think that that's the angle you're going for. You love the restaurant business. And if you can make money and survive and support your family, kudos to you. You've hit the lottery because you love what you're doing every day. So yeah, like we have a partner, Tillman Fertitta, who is very much able to make money in the restaurant business. He has figured out the way to do it on a massive scale. Restaurant, hotels, casinos, pleasure piers, blah, 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 blah. But I don't know that I could do that. But we're very happy to lean on Landry's for the things that we may have not have been great at. And frankly, spending money on legal accounting and all those things that they were able to absorb. It was a really great way of understanding how to like streamline. It is extremely difficult to make money in a small restaurant. I don't care how busy you are and how great it is. I don't know how people do it because the costs are not in our favor. The cost of labor, the cost of food. You can only charge so much. And as you see now from the pandemic, people are charging even more than ever. It is partially inflation, but it's also because like, you know, we're at half capacity, dude. What are we supposed to do here? I got to charge more to just break even. Sorry. Okay. But 
you never really go backwards, right? So now the new standard is set. What I think is important to make money in this business, if you're busy and you're at your max capacity and you're not making money, it's your fault. You're overpaying for things. You're not managing your food and liquor costs. And you may have unfortunately made a bad deal for rent. I don't know. But those big ticket items are generally what suck the profits out of you. So if you're running at 30% food costs, you should be at 20. I'm giving round numbers of whatever. But you better find that 10% without giving up quality. And that's a trick. You need to get rid of some of your kitchen maybe staff because you have too many items that one guy's making one thing. Maybe that one thing's not worth it and one guy can do three jobs or three different, you know what I'm saying? So when pandemics come along or recessions come along, it forces us all in every industry, but specifically the restaurant business to tighten and figure out how to get lean and still be efficient. Well, I think that a lot of people are benefiting from this in that they figured out how to operate their business with less people and cared much more about every single thing that was being served, every item, every menu mix, whatever, every price. If I raise this a dollar because I sell so much more of this, how much more money do I get to the bottom line? Your contribution, contribution, contribution. Then you should be able to make money because the hardest part is being full. If you're not full and you're not making money, then that's a whole different conversation. But for the people that are full, and succeeding in the hardest part, which is filling the space, you should be able to make money. Do you see a greenfield opportunity in front of you in hospitality? I'm curious to know. I know you have two restaurants opening, but do you see this as a massive opportunity to scale when landlords are still pliable? There's a ton of available real estate out there. No, because none of those things are really true, I don't find. Just because there's deals around and empty buildings doesn't mean you should take them. They're generally empty now because they weren't good locations or they had a lot of fleas on them that cost too much and there's problems. And I think that if you are successful and every broker's calling you like, I got the best space, I got the best space, and you feel excited because you have all this opportunity, that could be the demise of you ultimately. I think right now, less is more. Get your core business as good as humanly possible and walk before you run. So for us, Catch was our only real success because of that success, doing all these things that come off of it, we streamlined, we got rid of all that crap, and only sunk our teeth into and our focus into catch because I got news, it's almost impossible to create one. And if you do that, Nobu as an example, you don't see like 50 different brands of Nobu, I mean, I get there's Matsuhisa, but like that's 20 years later of success, the one major (laughs) chef can do it. Great. Again, he's like a Bezos in that way. But there's very few examples. So Enjoy your success of your one, make it the greatest, make sure it's established, take years of that attention, and then maybe expand to another one. And not across the world, not to another state necessarily, maybe in midtown versus downtown, or kind of close, you can see it and oversee it. Because the other thing, scaling far is very hard. I would say impossible unless you are really infrastructured up. And if you are infrastructured up, the likelihood is you're bloated and you're probably losing money and it's going to be very difficult. So you must expand. So it's a very crazy balance, right? Like, how do you have the infrastructure? You're hiring to scale, but that could nip you in the bud too. It takes years to do, you know, so it's very hard. I got to say, it's not easy. It's fun, but it's definitely a challenge. You're seated in major markets, but do you think that there are lessons you've learned 
that would apply to smaller markets as well? Do you think that you could go to a San Antonio, Texas and take the lessons that you've learned from major markets and make it work? And if so, what are those lessons? What do you think those universal truths are? The reality is, is that I'm cheating. I want to just go where everyone's at. Like, I'm not trying to pioneer. We tried that. It's impossible. Like, yes, could we now go into a second tier market, even Long Island, and do a business? Sure. I don't know why I would want to do that because it requires the same amount of work that a big major market requires, same amount of employees generally, same amount of attention. So what's the point? Can you give an example of a big box restaurant that goes to a smaller tier? Yeah. But if you're not a Fridays and you're not like a chain and you're not like a drive through, you're not like a fast casual, those are the markets that you start in a major market, you get your hype and your excitement, and then you drop them into all the second tier cities and everyone's happy to have a sweet cream. But I think for a catch specific brand or a big steakhouse brand, if you were to do that, we would just do it all on a smaller scale of everything and be okay with instead of like a potential 20 plus million dollar restaurant, understand how to make money in an $8 million or $10 million store. If it's smaller than that, I don't think it's worth the time when you have these big venues. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Different tiers, right? So to a new person who's like sitting in their college dorm being like, I wish one day I could open a restaurant or a nightclub or a bar, I would say, if you love it, then you must do it and figure out how to do it. There's no map that one must follow exactly. Everybody's journey, I think, in business, entrepreneurial business in general is very different. You have college dropouts that are successful. You've got doctorates. You've got Harvard Business School. You've got, you know, I do think it's important to have experience in the industry that you say you love, because I don't know that you can know that you love it unless you worked in it. So Although I never worked as a waiter or a bartender, I did a different side. It was more on the promotion side. And I did understand how that worked and got to know how that worked. And then I applied that and then later kind of understood a little bit more about the other roles. So I would say working within the industry you love, getting a job at the bottom is not bad. Be Starting out as a bar back or a busboy or a back waiter or whatever is a great thing. Because eventually, if you do all those jobs, which I did in the nightclub business, I did everything, for someone to tell you when you're a leader later, I can't do that, it can't be done, you know it can because you did it yourself. So first number one thing, make sure you love it. And second is don't let money or not having money be the reason not to do it. A lot of people I've talked to over my you know, span, they're always like, well, how do you start? That's the biggest hurdle. Like, how do you raise money when you don't have experience? How do you raise money when you don't have a proven success record or track record? I would say that you ideally would partner with somebody who brings something else to the table. It might be financial or it might be reputation or experience that you can lend your expertise or your gift to and joint venture. Doing it by yourself is tough, right? But if you got A chef who was very successful in their town of whatever for the last five years, but didn't own the restaurant, he wants to go and open a restaurant. Well, that's a guy that you might want to talk to or a girl. Well, I know how to operate. And my friend here is a great chef. These things happen all the time. And you make a deal that hopefully you don't regret and go for it. Sometimes 
there is no rich friend or money on the table. So another aspect would be to same scenario, maybe find a landlord or a hotel group or something that is looking for new fresh blood to operate and turn the lights on to their kind of dingy, shitty little restaurant in the basement or uh, ground floor of their complex and take a management deal. You put up the money, I'll work for you. I'll take a piece of this and a piece of that gross and net and we'll blood, sweat and tear it and make a bad deal because it's your first deal, whatever it takes to get in the door. That will be your proof of concept, won't it? On someone else's dime, you can then parlay that one year, two year, three year, four years later. I can raise money because I can prove that I have now done this. Look at what I did here. I took a shithole and I made it into something amazing. And then you have a business. You can't do what everybody in this generation wants to do, which is zero to 100. It doesn't work. I mean, for some, but again, not for most. So you have to be willing to win the time put in the effort and find creative ways to get that situation to reality for yourself. That's Mark Bernbaum. For more on the Catch Hospitality Group, go to catchhg.com. If you want to tell us your story or refer someone to be a guest on the show, email us at booking at fullcomp.media. To hear previous episodes or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel, and you've been listening to Full Comp.